Yeah. Of course, the earthquake yesterday's earthquake interrupted the the coverage of Libya, which we were following with more or less attention from the media. And you know, it struck me how embedded we are in the rest of the world. You know, it was 1960s when Marshall McLuhan term coined the phrase the global village. And at that point, everybody thought, you know, he was sort of a cult guy and nobody, he got written off by a lot of academics. But he was incredibly prescient <clears throat> because what's going on in Libya, we can actually watch pretty much live uh, scenes that, you know, just aren't as vivid when they're, when they're written about or even still photographs. And then we're again we're embedded not only in in um, the East Coast and their the trauma of their tremor, <laughs> as as it as it were, but you know the West Coasters were they were on Twitter you know there were there was some bonding there we're on the West Coast and you know so it's just interesting how how. Uh, Groups sort of form out there, and and there's a there's a tendency when we think of consumer culture. I mean, this media that brings us the world is also bringing us bait, <laughs> pretty much. And there's a tendency, you know, to have some aversion to that consumer stuff, um, and the aversion. I, you know, for for legitimate reasons, I think. <clears throat> um, sort of obscures just how deeply we're embedded in the consumer culture too, <clears throat> in ways that we don't that we don't actually notice. Um, consumer culture isn't a thing, an entity to be pierced in some way. It's made up of us. <clears throat> it's it's cultured by the media, and it does it does culture uh, desire and wanting. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, in in ways we we don't really notice because we're so we're so embedded. We're dependent, you know, on our environment. So this is the essence of anatta, actually, or anatta, the, the no-self, the emptiness that the Buddha was talking about. We're dependent, we're not separate from our physical environment, that's for sure. We depend on the biosphere to survive, and the biosphere depends on the relationship of the Earth to the Sun and the Sun to the galaxy. The galaxy only exists because of the Big Bang. Our, our presence here right now is directly related to the Big Bang. It's not random. It's not separate. And in that same way, we're not separate from this consumer culture, even though there may be aversion to it. And like I say, the aversion is not um, ill-advised, but it also defines our relationship to our experience in, in some ways. Um, A large, you know, our personalities are are cultured 
in this in this uh, medium too. We're we're all. Don't we want to get the most for the least? We go shopping. <laughs> you know, I find myself. I mean, it's it's really embedded in us, and and all the internet tools are now make it available to get the most for the least. I I uh, subscribe to a, a community network. I was on the board in the Davis Community Network, which provides internet service, and I'm constantly you know getting ads from Comcast and AT&T for much cheaper internet access. And every time I, you know, I find myself say, well, you know, I like having the guys down the street and they'll actually show up at my house and they answer my calls and it's a person and, you know, um, so I'm justifying to myself spending more money. You know, because it's so, it's, it's, it becomes part of our our personalities. We, um, we almost create our identities out of what we assemble from consumer culture. I think I may have asked this once before. Is there anybody here who has anything on their person at this moment that they made from natural materials? I mean, probably not. <laughs> you know, we bought it all. You know, so we're not directly involved in even the 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 creating the the basics of our day-to-day -day survival. What we produce is usually, you know, jobs are are pretty narrow. Uh, many of them pretty abstract. Um, not things we would do for a hobby. You know what I mean? Um, you know the hobbies are for weekends and evenings, um, and what we what we what we do is we earn money to go and assemble a lifestyle, <clears throat> and this puts us right in the middle of the eightfold path. Right, livelihood is not separate, and in some ways, um, you know, right livelihood is um, right lifestyle. The Buddha's time, the Buddha said, okay, they're, they're, I mean, he, he was talking mostly to monks and nuns, so there wasn't a whole big issue about lifestyle for most of the people he was addressing. But when he talked with lay people, he would, there were five things you weren't supposed to do, trade in meat and living beings and weapons and poisons and, I mean, there were some, just some basic guidelines. But, you know, given those basic guidelines, you might have trouble if you were a manager of a Safeway. Because you know, all that stuff is in there. Um, <clears throat> so updating right livelihood, you know, we produce our, our livelihood through some, uh, you know, much narrower kinds of, of behavior out of the division of labor in, in the society, and then we sort of construct identities out of the kinds of things we consume and the kinds of things that we uh, gather around us and the kinds of things we do. Um, but we, we consume, we buy a good time, 
you know, parties, weekends, uh, food. I, I certainly spend a lot more on prepared food than uh, I did when I was, you know, was younger, certainly than my parents did, than my mom did. Um, and, you know, f foodieism, you know, exotic tasting food. We go for the pleasure, for the pleasant experience. We consume experience, travel. You know, it's not so much adventure, which really implies the possibility of failure. You know, things could go wrong. You know, but, you know, we, we I mean, things can go wrong. You can lose your luggage. Um, <laughs> you know, um, or get delayed and have to stay over in Denver. <laughs> you know, I mean, things happen, right? But um, you probably won't get eaten by a tiger. Probably not. Um, and, you know, we, we, what we wrap ourselves in, our experience, becomes who we think of ourselves as. Not so much what we do. What we do... Um, you know, is is such a narrow part of the range of our experience. Um, and the the culture, which, I mean, this is described as a consumer economy, I guess, which means that we're buying more than we're making. Is that... I forgot to take economics. I forgot to do a lot. I forgot to... <laughs> You know, I, I forgot, but I, I think that's what it means. Anybody know what it means? You know. Um, we forgot to do it, too. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. Oops. <laughs> so, you know, we... we um, we're, we consume, but it's in the context of our biological being, which is, we got dukkha. Dukkha is sort of built in. I don't think it's some, you know, we talk about dukkha as sort of something bad, right? I mean, we sort of want to get rid of it, got some aversion to dukkha. Anybody not got aversion to dukkha? You know, the dissatisfaction that, that's built in into life. And in this, in this culture, that sense of lack, that I need something else, I'm not quite complete, the offer is to fill that hole with something. Yeah, that you could, you could fill it by, by, you know, getting something, buying something, or, you know, in the, in the context here, getting enlightened. It's kind of hard to buy enlightenment. It's kind of hard to even know what we're talking about. Sometimes, when you know, when we throw the words around, but you know, the, we'll plug that that sense of lack, that dissatisfaction, somehow, with a, a product, an experience, um, and so we we encrust ourselves with what I what I sort of call ego casting. So you know. Um, Around here, not. I was in New York with my, my granddaughter. That was really fun. <coughs> I had about a week there. 
about a week ago and walking around New York City, she's 10, so it was just a big deal. It was really, it was really cool. But walking around New York City, every third person has an iPod, in, you know, and they're walking around the streets, they're riding bicycles with iPods, I'm calling. But, um, you know, they're listening to music that suits them instead of the ambient sounds of the environment they're in. You know, we go to the computer, you know, we, we get news from sources that make us feel comfortable. You know, anybody regularly read redstate.com? <laughs> Not so much. I, I, I see no hands. <laughs> They'd be afraid to raise their hand. That's because we're, we're sort of not a red state, but, you know, um, it's out there, and there are people who... You know, we, we'd rather read, what, the Huffington Post or, you know, not so much the Drudge Report, you know. Yeah, we, you know, we, we create an environment for ourselves that reflects ourselves back. Yeah. We don't, we don't listen to uh, talk shows that push our buttons, that button-pushing stuff. And we and 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 yet we're reactive to this environment in ways that are really profound. My current practice is trying to to cultivate equanimity with the vision of uh, Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman. As a, <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> You know, and, and wait, what I'm discovering is all the things I'm attached to. You know, like the First Amendment. <laughs> but seriously, you know, and I, I actually want to suggest this kind of practice for dealing with, um, with our, our relationship uh, to our consumer, our consumer culture. You know, we, we, we create our identities out of um, the elements, the pieces of our consumer c culture, completely in embedded, and the culture cultivates tanha. Tanha is the, the word that is translated as desire in the second noble truth. The cause of the dissatisfaction The cause of dukkha, the essence of what the Buddha taught, was that this tanha, which is a kind of thirsting, you know, wanting to turn left at the next corner doesn't feel the same as wanting someone to say that was a good job, you know, to be recognized, or you know, the various kinds of cravings that we have for, you know, a better job, a, you know, change in a partner, change in health, change in, you know, things to be different. That, that thirst feels different than just, you know, so it's, we translate both as desire. So there's some muddiness there. But the word tanha is a kind of a thirst that can't be satisfied. And it's not that there's something wrong with us for having that. 
That, I think, is built into the organism and is a reason why, as a species, we've been pretty successful. I mean, we're overrunning the planet. How much more successful? If we're really smart, we'll... uh... But, you know, these these come with with the territory. This happened to us. I mean, isn't life happened to us? Unless somebody, anybody here, plan it? <laughs> we just all of a sudden here we are, right? Um, and and uh, and we identify with all of the elements of our, uh, you know, our organism, our my body, and one uh, in Tom Wolfe's book, I Am Charlotte Simmons, which is really fun, but it's like that big. I mean, and it's about a, a, a girl from Appalachia, I think, who uh, goes to Duke, and it, you know, takes her through the first year, and it actually takes you into her classes, and the neuroscientist is doing a lecture, and he says, we're, we're in this situation, it's like you toss a rock across the room, and halfway across the room, it becomes conscious, <laughs> and then it says, I want to go there. <laughs> You know, we 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 uh, we identify with the equipment we come with. This is me. Yeah, I, you know, um, and I I don't think that there's anything. It's not that there's anything wrong with tanha. It's just that it's the underlying cause of the dissatisfaction that we have with our life. That feeling that if only something, then I'd be okay. If only, even if we can't identify the if only. Or if we've got an idea of it, we satisfy it, and then the next moment another one comes up. You know, um, you know. If only I could have a remote control TV. That you know, in the fifties or sixties, it might. Now, you know, we don't even need a TV because there's just this constant wanting more and more and more. One of the worldly winds, by the way, one of the uh, uh, worldly desires, more and more. And this culture co- cultivates tanha in us. You know, if you were living in, a, in an agrarian society before the media engulfed us, it wouldn't be like you would, you know, you'd be pummeled with images of things that will make your life better and successful and... Um, I'm not quite sure that everybody's experience of the commercial world is the same as mine, but right, right now it seems to me that drugs are what are going to save you know, the commercials that I run into, my, my age demographic, I guess, and what, you know. Um, but I, I know that my, my granddaughter thinks that uh, Polly Pockets or something is going to, whatever it is, that you know, got a totally different idea of what will. But where do these things come from? From the media in which we're embedded. Our personalities interact with it. We're not separate from. And the, this tanha is all about trying to get what we want. You know, and, it, and to, to that extent, um, you know, it feeds the delusion that we can make ourselves happy by getting what we want. We think that's 
you know, that's how we work. You know, we're really designed to, to chase pleasant experience, or what we understand would be pleasant experience, what we forecast would be pleasant experience. I guess researchers are finding that we're not so good at forecasting. But I, I think actually, um, we, we just, we think that that, that getting what we want will be the way to uh, make ourselves happy. And we're slow learners because that's how we navigate. You know, sometimes, you know, things are good. Sometimes things are not so good. Pleasant experience comes and it goes. Unpleasant experience comes and it goes. It's like the weather. My wife talks about that in her book, you know, weather practice. Sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's humid, sometimes it's stormy, sometimes it's cold and rainy and windy and every, and it comes and we don't really have control. We try to make things turn out the way we want them to. Sometimes they do, right? Sometimes they don't. We aren't willing, you know, we, we could just sit and see without struggling with things, whether they, sh- you know, things show up the way we want them to th- at the same rate. They might. But we could do it without the, uh, without the drama. But the cult, the culture is not is not uh, cultivating contentment. You know, I understand in um, and and I I haven't seen this myself, but I understand that in Thailand, where there is no separation of church and state, there was some legislation proposed. Uh, I don't think it succeeded in passing, but it was proposed that would make it. Uh, impermissible to teach contentment because contentment doesn't support you know a culture that depends on buying on purchasing on consuming using importing contentment is uh, I mean includes contentment contentment is close to uh, is is close to nirvana. You know there are scholars. John Peacock, I've I've seen him write on the board, nirvana equals upeka. Equanimity equals nirvana. Of course, he gets a lot of blowback from Bhikkhu Bodhi and Tan Jeff. You know there's but it's a debate. I think maybe it's not a debate for Bhikkhu Bodhi, and it's probably not a debate for Tan Je- or for uh, uh, John Peacock. But you know, he his his presentation or Gill Gill thinks that Peacock is wrong. But there are scholars who who say, you know, look, if this is um, true equanimity, that means being you know embracing, engaging our experience fully without resistance or clinging which sounds an awful lot like the goal of practice to me. Um, when, I, you know, when, I, when I asked Bhikkhu Bodhi about it, he said, well, no, Upeka is just a psychological state and Nibbana is a transcendent something that we can get in touch with or realize and then we're free. I, I couldn't quite follow it myself. Mm-hmm. 
<coughs> I apologize, otherwise I would recount it to you in, in more detail. Um, but contentment is not a... Uh, is not a value in this... I mean, just check it out in yourself. It's not, you know, we want more, we want something else, things better, you know? Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman, contentment, you know, maybe fear, <laughs> whatever it, whatever it, it produces. You know. And we spend our time, rather than trying to be content, to be equanimous with the experience that is presenting itself. Lost in our stories, we're, we're, we look to try to make things better. John Cage was a composer in the 20th century, was um, uh, also an early follower of D.T. Suzuki and a Zen practitioner and philosopher. And he once uh, um, proposed a book title for himself. I don't think he ever wrote it, but he proposed a book titled How to Improve the World, You'll Only Make Matters Worse. <laughs> and we, we are, are, so much of our energy, because Tan has built in and is cultivated by the culture, so much of our energy is aimed at attaining some sort of satisfaction even though the Buddha says, first noble truth, satisfaction, not in the cards. <laughs> I mean, it, what, basically, that doesn't mean that there won't be pleasant experience and that things might not happen the way you want sometimes, but if satisfaction is important to you, you'll be dissatisfied. First noble truth, and yet we're still out there slogging away. Dealing with this, living with this, is an interesting, an interesting issue because right livelihood is one of the sila elements on the on the eightfold path, and I've actually increasingly. I'm finding myself not liking the word path. You know, path as a metaphor suggests you're going somewhere, and then when you get there, it's going to be different. But, you know, and I, I've heard you know Tan Jeff talk about the path to awakening. The path to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon, and the path to, but I'm thinking this eightfold path is is. Not a path; it's a way of being. So I'm thinking of it as an eightfold way of being, and it's it's a unity. If you talk about a basketball, for example, I can say a lot of things about a basketball. I can say probably eight things. I can say it's a sphere. It weighs, I don't know, a couple of pounds. It's brown. It's made of rubber. It's got a lot. There probably two or three thousand little dimples on it. You know, it's uh, inflated. Is that have I gotten to eight yet? Well, whatever. But you can't just take one of those out of there and still, yeah, I have this basketball, I'll take the brown and, uh, and forget the rubber or the, the, the air under pressure or it's two pounds or whatever. I'll just take the two pounds and that'll be my basketball. It's a, it's a unified way of being. 
And so right livelihood and the life we construct out of the, the elements that are here, you know, it's not any different than a bird creating a nest. You know, we work with the tools we've got, but we work with them in terms of our own, our own intentions and what we bring, what we bring to the table. And the purpose of, of right livelihood, the purpose of the sila elements of the path, speech, action, and livelihood, are for the attenuation and end of dukkha. That's the purpose of the, the Eightfold Path, way of being, is it's the, it's the way to the, the cessation of suffering, the ending of that dissatisfaction that we experience in life. <clears throat> and so our, you know, the, it's, and it's karmic then. The Buddha said karma, well, you know how karma, you know how the, the uh, this is something I learned from, from John Peacock, the, the word karma was originally in Sanskrit referred to, it was used by the Brahmins at the time to refer to the correct performance of uh, religious ritual. And that was what was supposed to ensure that things went as they were supposed to go. The rains would come, if you know, and the, the plants would grow and the animals would be fertile and you'd have, a, you know, plenty of kids and whatever it was you wanted and they would do sacrifices. And, and, and it was a really incredibly uh, uh, well thought out. I mean, there were, there were <coughs> the Brahmins being the priestly caste at the time, you know, they, they were people who specialized in the intonation of the, of the uh, mantras, the pitch and the pace and, you know, the gestures. And it was all related to the external, what you actually did, the performance of the ritual. And if things went bad, well, somebody hit an A-flat instead of an A. And, you know, no wonder we didn't get any rain or ice cream. I don't know why ice cream <laughs> just came to me. But the Buddha came along and he said, yeah, oh, and so this karmic behavior was embedded in the culture because your dharma was your duty, depending on your caste and where you were born in society. So there wasn't, you know, it wasn't even a matter of ethical action. The Buddha flipped everything around. He said, yeah, karma, or karman, karma is important. He said, but karma is intention. It's your, it's intention. And he just sort of took the Brahmanical word and, and flipped the meaning and sort of, I don't know, that, you know, <laughs> he did the same with the word Brahman, you know. He'd say, oh, it's not a matter of birth that makes you a Brahman. It's whether or not you've overcome suffering and seen, you know, the Eightfold Path. And so this is something that he did frequently. So if karma is intention, if right intention, which is the second element of the path, is karmic, then the life we construct and the way we live in our uh, consumer culture, our relationship to it, is karmic. And it determines not just what happens to us. Uh, you know, the Buddha, it's, it's interesting, there's a great, uh, because it's intention, it, well, let me, let me, 
just di- may I digress here for a moment about karma? You know, the, the, the Brahmins were concerned with external effects. The rain would come, the animals would be fertile, the, they would be fertile and have kids, successful, and people would be safe. And we, you know, it was all external stuff. They were concerned with what's going to happen to you. And so that was really an orientation that came and was surrounding the Buddha. The Buddha was talking about intention. So, you know, the Buddha said, what you set your mind upon regularly becomes the inclination of your mind. And so karma, if it's intention, it's what you intend. It's not so much what happens to you, it's what you make yourself into, who you become. So when we're talking about karma here in the context of our consumer culture, you know, we, if we set our mind on looking for things to fill that dukkha hole, anybody ever sit down with a catalog and just sort of flip through and sort of, I know I want something, I just don't know what it is. <laughs> But we're already there. You know, they don't have to drag us kicking and screaming. You know, this isn't like, I mean, this is, this is what a free society produces, <laughs> really. <clears throat> we don't have to look very far to find just the catalog that will keep us uh, attentive. So our intention to fill that dukkha hole with something. I mean, can we be content with dukkha? You know, or, you know, sort of paraphrase that Doobie Brothers song, Dukkha is just all right with me. <laughs> you know, because we can be really upset about dukkha. We can, we can escalate and add another layer of it on top. Um, hmm? And so we all sort of know the, the, the answer about how do we relate to this. We sort of all, all know the answer. You know, what is at the heart of right intention? You know, skillful intention. Intention, and again, it goes, you know, the Eightfold Path is about the attenuation of and, and ending of, of dukkha, of, of suffering. So the heart of right intention is ultimately... Renunciation. Not a word we like to hear. Because <laughs> we're so programmed to think that's not the way. Wait a minute. You know, I need more, not less. You can feel it physically almost. I'm not saying there's anything, I'm just checking it out in me. And I, that's how I feel. <laughs> you know. Renunciation is not real popular out there. And I, I actually don't like the word myself. I prefer abandonment. Renunciation has got there's there's sort of a flavor of aversion and pushing away. You know what I mean? But abandonment is just walking away, just leaving it be. You know, when that impulse to to hit the one click shopping at Amazon, you know, and just to let it come and go. I'm not so good at that, but I'm practicing. 
You know, our practice is not, I think of, I think of this, this consumer culture as an incredible laboratory for us to practice studying the, the things that push our buttons and that, or, and or that hook us. You know, we swallow, what, what hooks we swallow? And, the, and, and renunciation is the, the traditional practices. I actually think even mindfulness is a form of renunciation. So the mindfulness practice that we do on the cushion and we take off the cushion as we become a little bit more adept, I like to think of cushion practices like learner wheels. You know, you, you get good enough so that you can you know, they give you the push and you go wobbling down the street. Um, you know. But after a while you get to, you get to learn to, to actually cruise through New York traffic with headphones. <laughs> you know, there's got to be something clairvoyant going on there because I don't see how those people... I'm actually amazed that, that, that there, I, didn't, I haven't seen accidents there. I mean, not even crunches despite... anyway. So mindfulness is a way is a way of choosing just to know what is arising within us rather than acting out on it. Choosing you know, to be aware of it, just to maintain our awareness of what's arising, and and um, and we can we can you know conjure up images like you know Perry and Bachman. And then see how we react to it, and watch the resistance that comes. It's an in, can be an insight practice. We can encounter the world as an insight, as as in, you know moments, bits of opportunities for practice. You know. And just to watch how we how we respond, we conjure those things for ourselves. But the traditional practices are also are also helpful. Uh, dana really undermines consumerism. Dana is translated as as giving directly. The word for generosity is chugga. It's a little different, but we cultivate generosity by practicing giving. We practice the. Um, the behavior until it becomes uh, easier and then flows more naturally. But dana is a is a uh, um, a real practice that helps us that can help overcome the conditioning of the consumer culture, which says you'll fix yourself by doing this. Well, you can fix yourself by letting go as well. And of course, the precepts, which, uh, you know, the precepts sit on the Eightfold Path, on right speech and right action. And as elements of the path or the way of being, the precepts are about the attenuation of dukkha, the practice of the precepts, the observance of the precepts, are about ending suffering, at, n- at least not making things worse for ourselves 
and others. They're not about being good. No. They're about practice. And they're inside practice. You know, the times when you find yourself speaking, you know, I, I hear people say, well, this may be right, wrong speech, but yada da 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 Ah, who knows? <laughs> I guess I guess I'm not the only one who's heard that. <laughs> you know, but but you know what's going on with with speech is just the expression of our intentions and our perceptions. You know? And sometimes it's difficult to tell when we're deluded. You know, will that Porsche Carrera really? <laughs> make me feel that much better and you know maybe I, I, we my wife and I had a, a dear friend who uh, as she was dying from breast cancer went on a shopping spree to end all shopping sprees cars ping pong tables <laughs> perfume you name it you know um, just just uh, I have no idea whether it worked, she died anyway, <laughs> you know. Um, but maybe as a distraction from just the existential reality of our own impermanence, you know, the big impermanence that, you know, we sort of would rather watch TV than think about. <laughs> um, but the precepts are about, uh, you know, keeping in mind that what, whatever situation we're in, making things worse is not going to help us. You know, making things worse for others and for ourselves. You know, they're not, I see the precepts not as rules to be broken because for each of the precepts I can come up with a situation where adhering to the, to the rule in a, in, a, in a fundamentalist kind of way would be downright unethical. And I guess the example that I've used here before is the Nazis knock on the door and ask if Anne Frank is, is home, and you say, I took the precept, and I can't tell a lie, she's in the attic behind the fake bookcase. You know, you just say, and, and I've heard, I've heard um, senior teachers say, well, you have to finesse that. I just think you say no. <laughs> you know, who? I mean, you you just there, and I can think of so it's the idea is that the precepts are markers, you know, in the in the in the stream. I used to sail on San Francisco Bay a lot, and there are a lot of currents, you know. And I remember sailing along towards Angel Island, going going uh, west. And I look around; it seemed clear. I went below deck for a minute and came up, <clears throat> and there was a buoy that was just going right across my bow, maybe 20, 30 feet ahead. And I went, oh, you know, I, I could have hit that. But the buoy was going this way. What it meant was I was going that way. And the precepts are sort of like those buoys. You know, they, they're markers for us to, to give us reference point. You know, is this a, a point where um, speaking the truth or not speaking falsely is something to be adhered to uh, strictly. 
a woman in a group that I sit with in Davis doing a lot of hospice work and she was working with a woman who was um, was the last time that, that uh, she saw her. And the woman uh, asked her at some point, she said, you're a, I, I know you're a Buddhist, but um, do you believe in, in Jesus Christ and the resurrection? And, and um, without hesitation, Lynn said yes. And it, she said she could watch this woman just relax because it made she was okay. And, I mean, I, I just was so moved to hear that story, and yet, you know, the purpose is not some adherence to a rule. You know, it's a, they're, they're renunciation practices. They're practices of not taking up that impulse that arises in us to cling to grab, to resist, you know, it's, it's, a, it's physical in ways. You know, when you go to the intention to get up from your seat, the muscles, you know, the body engages. Uh, neuroscientists are saying intention is increasingly being recognized as the effort to uh, motivate action, to initiate action. And so the, the renunciation or abandonment is about just not taking that up. Not taking up the call to, you know, solve your problems with whatever is on the billboard at the moment that comes along with the uh, with the news. You know, the the. I mean, it's, it's amazing the 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 uh, commercial messages are everywhere and has led to a kind of mm, cynical irony that you know permeates public discourse, and certainly enter the entertainment media. Um, so there are ways to work with, with this. There may be some practices. I'll just suggest a couple, which, um, you know, you can pick a couple of uh, uh, things to just you know, it's like giving up for Lent. You know, not, not such a bad practice, actually. Um, actually, we can think of it maybe not so much as renunciation, but non-addiction. We're going to practice non-addiction. You know, it's a fr- sort of a friendlier term. We can pick, pick a food, just a particular food that you like, and for a short time, say, okay, I'm not going to. I, I munch Altoids in the car. I drive a lot. And I, if I didn't have them, wow, I can feel it. You know, the habit of my mind, the habit of my, um, you know, part of the drive, it, and it, it, it changes. I, I gather Chogyam Trungpa all used to do things like move the furniture a little bit too far apart so that people were never quite comfortable. Um, but, but, you know, if you, if you said, okay, f- this week I'm just not going to stop at Starbucks, or, or, you know, any ritual kind of thing you do regularly, just watch, you know, the, the energy change in your body. You know, you can start uh, exploring that, you know, it, with our interface with, with the culture. You can, you can pick, uh, you know, enter- entertainment programs, um, 
which are a way to, to, you know, that we use to, to fill our, our free time. We say, okay, I'm just not going to... Well, you could go, you know, do a real hard one and say, I'm just not going to check in on the news. Unless you're on retreat, that's hard to, hard to avoid. Somebody will tell you there was an earthquake or you would have felt it. You know. But you can, you can say, okay, I'm not going to watch the giants, which past couple of weeks <laughs> wouldn't have been such a bad idea. Um, but you can set little, little goals, you know, um, because we're so enthralled with the vision of gratification. Just enthralled with it, that we trot right along. And to notice when we're, when we're in the thrall of that. I think I've told this story on myself more than once, how I bought a, a, a Newton from Apple, which turned out to be a premature PDA. But I was—I walked across the floor of Moscone Center toward the, you know, big display place where they were selling, and I was about to spend what it was seven hundred dollars on this thing that didn't work so well. Um, all I could do was say, "Look at this! I just—I—I I want it. I'm just imagining it. I can't. You know, I'm just exploring what was going on as I was, you know, swirling <laughs> down the down the drain." The trick is to acknowledge um, the wanting. Acknowledge the ways in which the images and offerings that come through the media that we're so deeply embedded in, how we respond to them, just to acknowledge that. And then, then being willing to uh, forego the satisfaction that they offer or that they promise or that they even suggest, even indirectly, just as practice. And it doesn't have to be, for the rest of my life, I'm never going, you know, my, my wife would, there, there was a, a uh, they replaced one restaurant with another in Davis, and my wife was very displeased, and so she swore a lifetime oath never, never to go into that restaurant. Um, as it turned out, the restaurant didn't last longer than a few years, so... Um, but you don't have to do one of those. You can, you can just say, you know, I'm, what happens if I don't even just now? So just, you know, the thing is that instead of being resistant to and judgmental about our consumer culture, just acknowledge how we are embedded and dependent on it. And then seeing what areas we can practice refraining for the purpose of insight, just to notice what comes up, what kinds of attachments are there to these various things, what does it suggest, what, is it, what, is it, what directions does it push us. And insight into our own clinging is, of course, that's the... Uh, that's what the Buddha was hoping we would, we would pursue. So rather than be, being a bummer that we're in a consumer society, it's a great opportunity for practice. There's tons of material. Um, 
Before you find yourself in uh, San Rafael, you'll have had many opportunities. So, let me just let me just check and see as we're we're close to the end here, but see if there are questions or comments or thoughts or I have rattled on here. If you let me rattle on, I will. <laughs> Please. I had heard a cute story about consumerism. Um, maybe some of you have heard it. Um, back in the day when they were first hiring women to work in um, offices or whatever, some big company like GE or something, um, you know, hired a few women and everything was going great for a few years and then they all gave their two-week notice. And the boss said, what happened? What happened? What was wrong? And they said, oh, everything was great. We just have everything we want now. <laughs> <laughs> so... He, um, before they quit, he gave them all Sears robot catalogs, <laughs> and they never had a problem again. <laughs> all kinds of things that they had to get money for. Well, that's that's yeah. That's it. There you go. That's a metaphor for for our lives, and and you know we flip through the catalogs of the world for information. You know, I mean. You may have a particular interest in what's going on in Syria or in East Timor. And you can find it now. So you can, you can have your tanha exquisitely fine-tuned. Yeah. I heard it said, um, I, I'd like to know your, your comment on this that I, that I heard and I, I struggle with this. If a desire is given to you, it arises because it is something that God wants for you. I've heard that said. Mm. And um, I wonder well, what you would like to say. Well, I'm, my response to that will be very personal. And that is that um, if you make up God, then you have to explain. <laughs> you know, it, it winds up, you use that as an explanation and you have to explain contradictions and you wind up I, I'm not sure what it means to say that God meant that. My granddaughter says everything happens for a purpose. And I say, well, yeah, but probably not the purpose that you think, you know. Uh, my, my view is that this experience is impersonal. And, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get a choice here. I turned up male, you know. I could say God wanted it, or I could just say, you know, it's like the wind. We're like the wind. We're, you know, it's just we appear when the conditions are right, and when the conditions are not right, we will disappear. And so, I, and I don't find the, yeah, people like the idea of, in, this is my view again, purely personal, and I'm not, suggesting anybody adopt it. But as I read the notion of the notion of God, it's a comforting, consoling thing. Buddha was not particularly into into consolation a lot. He was into more about courage in the face of radical impermanence. Um, and I am I have my, one of my closest friends is a devout Baptist, 
and she's just beautiful. And um, I have nothing against her beliefs, and my beliefs are different. Is that a response? <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you guys for your attention. It's always a treat for me to be here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.